1: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com.
0: Welcome, podcast listeners. It's summertime episode. I'm really excited for today's show since I think it's going to tip you off to a huge opportunity that very people know about. Fortunately, our guest is a master on the subject. He's co-founder, CEO of the Economic Innovation Group. A nonprofit research, policy, and advocacy organization. He's also the adjunct assistant professor at Georgetown, where he teaches on economic diplomacy and international trade. He's also a senior economic advisor of the White House National Security Council and National Economic Council. You've also probably seen his work in a million different publications like Bloomberg, US News, Wall Street Journal basically everywhere. We're thrilled to have him on the show today. Welcome to the show, Steve Glickman.
1: Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here.
0: Steve, normally we do a background for our guests, but I really want to cannonball right in and we'll kind of weave in what you've been up to as well. So I kind of found out about this topic of opportunity zones a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, and was really surprised I hadn't heard more about it. And then the more conversations I had with a lot of my friends and investors and fellow CIOs, they also hadn't heard that much about it. So why don't you give me a brief overview? It start at ground zero. What, what are opportunity zones?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, I'm not surprised that people are still learning about this in real time. This is a brand new program that was just created last December as part of the big tax reform legislation that passed through Congress. It was better known for things like the limitations on how you can deduct state and local taxes and how it adjusted the corporate and individual tax rates. But one piece of it, and arguably the only new bipartisan piece of that tax reform package, was a piece of legislation that we snuck in there called the Investing in Opportunity Act. It was a bill that was championed by Senators Tim Scott from South Carolina, a Republican, and Cory Booker from New Jersey, a Democrat and two members from the House, also Republican and Democrat, Pat Berry and Ron Kine from the Midwest, and ultimately had about 100 members of Congress who co-sponsored it. And that legislation, which had been around for a couple years but kind of flew under the radar, was packed into that tax reform bill thanks to the good work of of Senators Scott and Booker. And people, are, I, I think, are learning about it in real time as they finally got through the other... A thousand pages of the tax code changes, a few of those pages are this program, which is now called Opportunity Zones. And uh, let me just kind of take a step back and talk about what it's designed to do. The problem it's designed to solve from a policy perspective is how you connect new sources of equity capital at scale, systemically, uh, to places that haven't seen a lot of capital investment for, in some cases, decades. And it does that through a really powerful tax incentive that we think will create some excitement among existing investors who have capital gains in the stock market or in real estate holdings or in anything else to essentially roll over those capital gains into uh, what are called opportunity funds, special investment vehicles that have to deploy their capital into these opportunity zones that are built in these low-income communities all around the country. And they can invest in just about any asset. And if you do that, you get a a really substantial capital gains incentive. Ultimately, if you hold for a long period of time, 10 years or more, in these opportunity zones, and you earn appreciation on on what you invest, you invest a million dollars a year one, it's worth $10 million at year 10, you don't pay any new capital gains ever, as long as you held at least 10 years. So that's the biggest part of the incentive. But there's obviously a lot of pieces to how this works that make it a little more complicated than
0: that. All right, so we're gonna die. I have a million questions, but I just want to restate that for the investors listening. So, if you sell a company, you got a million bucks. There's kind of three big benefits. One is you get a tax deferral on those capital gains. So you don't have to pay them. You don't have to pay them right then. So you get to wait five, seven years. Then you get a step up in basis on that up to I think fifteen percent, perhaps. Correct. And then, like you mentioned, one of the biggest ones is any gains on that actual investment are free capital gains. And there's a lot of good websites where you can type in, I think, your website as well. We'll links on the show notes to calculators that show you how this works and everything. So, a pretty monster benefit. So, all right. So, tell, tell me a little bit more about where these opportunity zones exist. How can you find them? What is the, uh, What's the process on how they were created?
1: So, there are opportunity zones in every state and U.S. territory around the country. That includes for example, in Puerto Rico, the whole island of Puerto Rico is now one big opportunity zone. In general, from just about every state, the governors were in charge of selecting their zones, and they could pick from 25% of their low-income communities. And low-income communities make up, on average, about 40% of a state. So really, across the country, you're talking about 10% of the country now, on average, more or less, are opportunity zones and that's really in every city across the country. The Opportunity Zones now make up about 8,700 census tracts. It's about 75% urban, about 25% rural, and the nature of those tracks is different depending on where you are. So for instance, if you're in New York City, there's I think only one track in Manhattan, south of Harlem. But if you're in Cleveland, Baltimore, Milwaukee, Detroit, a lot of these former Rust Belt cities that have struggled economically, their whole downtown, and certainly their, their central business district is now one big opportunity zone. And so these are going to look different depending on how local economies are doing and the, and the decisions, frankly, that governors made and the effectiveness of mayors in advocating for tracks within their, their cities and towns. But you, you can find a totally interactive map on this. A few places, one of which is on our website at, at eig.org. You can type in any address or city or county, and you can see what the map looks like. And if you know you or project you have or a business that you're running or investing in falls in in one of these zones.
0: So you know the the problem this is trying to solve, and I, and I find this fascinating because I was spent a lot of time on the on the maps. Was you know you've heard so much in the media and the community online about the growing inequality in America and you know how certain people have just been left behind in certain areas. And I'm a capitalist, so I love any sort of solution that incentivizes people to kind of solve the problem through incentives or whatever it may be. Talk to us a little bit about kind of there tends to be this growing disparity and how you guys came along with, with this solution, by the way. Like, was this something that just sprung out of your mind one day with the economic group or what's the what was the origin genesis of how you guys decided to solve this problem in a somewhat pretty unique manner?
1: So EIG is about five years old. We launched in early 2013, just as I was leaving the White House. Uh, I launched it with partner and co-founder, John Lettieri, and we both worked very closely with EIG's chairman, Sean Parker, on standing up the organization initially. And it was always being set up, essentially, to work on bipartisan problems that had private sector-oriented solutions, and specifically were related to how you deal with the unevenness of economic growth in the US. Why such a small handful of places were really capturing all the gains from the economy, creating all the businesses, getting all the capital, and why a lot of other places were being left behind. Obviously that have all sorts of, that creates all sorts of issues, whether it comes to health outcomes, economic outcomes, political outcomes in this country, arguably the 2016 election is one additional data point. In this discussion of what happens when places feel left out of the economy. And we spent the first couple years really just studying the problem. We put out a, a, what's now a pretty well known index called the Distressed Communities Index, which evaluates every zip code in America according to a bunch of different indicators on education, housing, business growth, income, and, and other factors to map the whole country out and see how communities compare with each other. And we're we saw places that were disproportionately distressed and what that meant. And concurrently, we knew we wanted to offer a a public policy solution that was totally new, but based in this really rich history of, a bipartisan history of place-based policymaking. And we kind of lost that. This was really popular in the 70s and 80s. Jack Kemp, Bill Clinton in the 90s worked on a number of things together, but really in the last 20 years, the most recent example is something called the New Markets Tax Credit. We really gave up on place-based policymaking. I think there was a consensus in the kind of wonk community and the economist community that these zone programs didn't work. And so we studied that and we determined that it wasn't because there's something wrong with incentivizing or tying capital to certain types of markets, it's because the incentive structure was done all wrong in the past. The incentives were too small. They weren't scalable. They weren't flexible. They were super complicated to take advantage of. So no one practically used these programs. And so our bet was if you create a brand new model, one that could scale as much capital as it could bring in, and there's, by our calculation, about $6 trillion in unrealized capital gains that could be rolled into this Opportunity Zone program, was rolled over through essentially private sector vehicles. These opportunity funds function like just about any other type of fund out there. And there wasn't a government intermediary to have to pre-approve projects or that created a bunch of red tape around how you did this. You could move capital at scale in these communities. And that's what we basically worked on. What model would both be attractive enough for investors to use on the one hand, and then have enough parameters and safeguards so we knew that capital was one, going to places that need it, two, going to investments that were economically productive, and three, ultimately creating more businesses and jobs. And we think this program has all that.
0: I love it. So, okay. So we got the background. We got a little bit of the overview. We're going to start to get into a little more specifics because a lot of the research online, as you mentioned, some of the, the final ink seems to be getting finished where the locations or whatnot. But say, say I'm an investor and I'm listening to this podcast. I pulled over the side of the road while I'm driving because it's so interesting. And I said, okay, I'm going to go sell all my highly appreciated Amazon stock or my Bitcoin or my house, whatever it may be that I got a capital gains. I got a million bucks. What's the next step? I think it's, you need to start a fund. Maybe maybe walk us through what what people need to do.
1: Yeah. So it it sort of depends on kind of where you sit as an investor. So all capital in this program has to flow through funds. The funds can be as simple as complicated as you want them to be. They can be a corporation or partnership. So they can be an LLC, a C Corp, an LLP. They can be structured however you want. They can include one investor only or a whole group of investors. They can invest in one project or a bunch of different projects. They can be real estate focused or private equity style or venture capital style or infrastructure style. We know of people who are creating funds that look like all of those pieces of it. For most folks, They either have identified a a project they want to invest in because they they know it's in one of these zones, and so they're going to raise this rolled over capital to invest in it, so they're creating a fund just for that project, or they're investors now who are used to creating funds, and they're going to raise their next fund as an opportunity fund and solicit capital into the program that way. I'd be surprised if that many people created their own funds for their own capital, because it's a, it's a lot. You're going to have to work with lawyers and accountants to structure the fund, and you're going to have to you know be able to find a deal to invest in. But you could do it all yourself. That's not usually what, what we're talking about, but it's possible. And then the only thing that separates an opportunity fund from any other fund is really two things. There's a practical step you have to take, which is that with the fund's tax returns next year, you're gonna have to file a form, which Treasury hasn't put out yet, that says I'm an opportunity fund, and I'm committed to investing 90% of my capital in opportunity zones, which is the requirement. And IRS will test the funds in some way every six months to ensure they've got their capital deployed in these zones. So that's the kind of practical compliance piece of, of what's required. And there are certain kind of rules and methodologies for how you actually have to deploy the capital. Now, depending on what you're looking to invest in, that could be really simple. If you're just investing in a brand new business, you just put the money in that business and you're done. If you're investing in a an existing piece of real estate that you're going to rehab into something else, it's a little more complicated. There's tests this program has to ensure that you're not just sitting on a vacant piece of property or you're just a shell corporation, or you're just moving your headquarters, but to make sure you're making a real investment. And so I'm sure you're going to want to talk through that. But let's just say there's certain practical tests. So this is going to take some level of expertise to ensure you're not running afoul of the rules of the program.
0: And so if I remember correctly, you have 180 days to make the investment after selling the original investment, correct?
1: That's correct. Once you realize your capital gains, so once you sell your stock or your real estate, you have 180 days to invest that into a fund.
0: I got a lot more questions. So like, let's say I'm investing into a startup or a business in Detroit. Could this be any business? Could this be a coffee shop? Could it be a startup internet company? Are there any rules? like, Do they have to do business in Detroit? Could they be a two-person shop? Are there any sort of rules or regulations around what sort of business that is?
1: Yes, but it's really broad. All the examples you described would work the business can be involved in any kind of industry. There's two exceptions to what the business can't be. One, it can't be essentially a financial services business, meaning it can't be primarily deploying capital. So you can't invest in a bank in Detroit or a payday lender in Detroit or another fund in Detroit. So that category of investments isn't allowed in the program. And the other category of investments that's not allowed are what are called SIN businesses. So anyone who's done community investment, kind of tax incentivized programs in this space before will have a somewhat of a sense what that means but it typically means you can't invest in country clubs, golf courses, liquor stores, massage parlors, etc. But other than that you can invest in anything else, anything else presumably you think is going to appreciate and you know if you hold it long enough will earn you a capital gains because that's really the big benefit uh, in this program. Aside from the type of industry you can invest in, there's also tests to even within that industry, how you know a business qualifies. And there's basically three different tests. Test one is that all of the tangible property of that business has to be in zoner zones. And what that means is it's stuff. So anything it owns or leases, its office space, its computers, its desk, have to be within opportunity zones. It doesn't just have to be in Detroit. Could be in opportunity zones all over the country or it could just do within one city. So that's test number one. Now, that's not a test of your intellectual property, and it's not a test of your employees. It's just a test of your stuff. Two is that you're actually doing business. So you can't just be a shell corporation. You have to be what's called an active conduct business. And the third big test is related to whether you're a brand new business or you're an existing business. And if you're a brand new business, you're good. If you're a business that has incorporated or been created for the purpose of being an opportunity zone business, then there's nothing else to qualify. If you're an existing business, there's actually a big debate over how you qualify. And this is one of the places, and this is a a really important caveat really for our whole conversation. We are missing some of the regulatory clarity we need from IRS to know about every possible type of investment model that will be used in this program. And in fact, even some really basic rules for like how long funds have to invest. And one place that we know there's some gray area is how you improve an existing business so that it qualifies with this program. And really that test is pretty murky right now.
0: So if you invest in a startup in Detroit, do their sales have to be in Detroit or their sales could be anywhere? Revenue could come from anything? Yes. Yes. So who certifies the actual business? Is it the business declares, hey, we're an opportunity zone business? Or do I have to self-certify as the investor?
1: Yeah. So there's really no certification of the business. There's really only certification of the funds deploying the capital. The funds have a lot of responsibility in this program. They're the kind of core intermediaries. And they're going to have to make a determination that the business they're investing in meets the test of the program. And the reason they have to do that at all is because they're going to have to commit to IRS and prove to IRS in some way, or at least tell IRS, in some way, every six months, that they've invested 90% of their capital in qualified assets. So really, the funds are making their own determination about it based on their read of the statute. And hopefully, we'll get more and more clarity from Treasury and IRS that makes that easier for fund managers. But if you're investing right now, which you could, there are funds right now. There are investors who are utilizing this program right now. There's real estate being invested right now through this program. You're essentially making your own determination that this asset, this business, meets the test of the program. Now, businesses could self-certify and say, hey, we're an opportunity fund business, but it's not a kind of a formal real thing under the way this program works.
0: And so, you know, we talked a little bit about private kind of startups, and it's a little murkier for currently run businesses. You and I talked about this before, but I assume that public companies' stocks, I think I saw that the rules currently were that it had to be at the IPO or initial transaction? Maybe talk about, do you think, if you had to guess, would would public stocks be something that would ever be included or probably not?
1: So it has to be originally issued stock, the stock you're buying in Opportunity Zone companies. The reason why public stocks are probably unlikely is it's because they probably won't meet the test of the program. So you'd have to be buying stock that you're holding for 10 years in a company that has all of its stuff in opportunity zones for that whole span of time that you're invested in it uh, and is meeting all those other rules. And for really, really large companies and for just about any public company, that's going to be pretty unlikely. I suppose it, it's possible in some scenarios, but there is not much of a market right now around this. you got to assume most of this are going to be private market holdings, whether they're companies or, or real estate.
0: Well, if it ever develops, we've got two great tickers for... We picked up off the NYC, including one which was just OZ for Opportunity Zone. And I was laughing because I think that used to be an Australian ETF for Oz. So, okay. So, we covered the kind of private, public side of the businesses. I think the big use case for this or a big chunk of it will be real estate. And so maybe talk a little bit about, could I just go buy a home in Detroit and call that an opportunity zone investment? Or like what what are the rules around real estate that apply to to this sort of uh, investing? Uh,
1: I'll get to that in a second. Let me talk to the premise, though, of the question for a second. There's no doubt that real estate assets are the big movers in this program right now. And those are mostly for kind of circumstantial reasons. One, Community investment has typically meant real estate investment. So there's a lot of muscle memory in that community about how to take advantage of tax incentive structures, particularly for real estate, and two, kind of the obvious reason that real estate is not going anywhere. There's no chance it's going to move out of the zone, qualify one day, and not be qualified the next day. And so I'm sure a big chunk of the capital that's moving will be in real estate, at least initially. But the other piece I'd throw out there is that the big incentive for this program are on investments that have really big multiples. And typically that's not the case in real estate. If you're a business investor, and let's say you're a venture capital investor and you're looking for a company that's going to be a 20X return or more, and you're able to not pay the capital gains on all of that upside because you held it for 10 years and it was growing in an opportunity zone. Well, that's obviously a big win for the community because we think this will encourage the the setting up of companies in these zones, whether they're new or whether it's a company moving to those zones. And we didn't really talk about that, but that's another easy place to qualify if you're moving from outside of the zone to inside a the zone. But there's going to be a big incentive then in the market to make those sort of business investments. But right now you're totally right. There's a lot of moving on the, among the real estate community because for the, really the third point, it's really easy to identify real estate assets in opportunity zones. It's harder to identify investable businesses in the zones, just because that's kind of how those two markets work. And if you're investing in a piece of real estate, it's a similar set of tests. Obviously, you gotta be in the zone, but you're either in or out, that's pretty binary. Two, you're essentially making a determination that the asset is new, so you're building it from the ground up, or it's already there, it's a real estate, you know, it's, a, it's already being used for rental real estate and you're gonna convert it to something else. And if you're converting it to something else, There's a really clear test in the statute uh, that lays out what you have to do. If you invest a million dollars in a piece of real estate that's existing, you have to improve it by at least the same amount you invested in it over 30 months. So day one, you invest a million. By the end of 30 months, sometime during that time, you'll have to invest another million in order to qualify for the program. And so that's going to work for certain types of rehab projects in certain parts of the country, and it may not work for others because you're going to have to spend you know, so much money up front to buy the property, you may not be able to put enough into it of rehab to qualify. There's one other test and that's that the real estate you're buying has to be part of an active conduct business again. So uh, you can't, Buy it for just a home that you're going to live in or sell. It has to be like a rental property that's going to be in business for 10 years, or it can be a commercial development or a multifamily or affordable housing or lots of other types of things you could think of in the real estate universe or infrastructure, but it's got to be part of a business. So it's got to be a part of a business. It's got to be in the zone and you got to improve it if you're not building it from the ground up. And that's basically the core test.
0: And so I assume, as I listen to this, I I keep coming up with a million questions, farming, like in farmland, that would qualify as a business, I would assume?
1: So the question is what you're investing in, in that scenario. If you're investing in the farm itself, and you can buy stock in that LLC, maybe that owns the farm, that might be one type of thing you could invest in. If you're actually buying the farmland, I think it's a little bit of an open question of whether you have to improve it or not and whether the farming is improving it in the right way or not. And land is kind of in this funny space. In fact, we don't even know when you calculate what you have to improve, whether you have to factor in the value of land as part of that improvement or not. So there, again, this falls within one of those open questions of how IRS is going to define some of these core provisions of how the program works.
0: I would assume that farmland, if you're running it as a business that's producing crops would totally qualify. The challenge, going back to what you mentioned, is I assume also that any earnings or income dividends getting spit out of the company don't qualify for any sort of tax treatment, correct?
1: Yeah, that's true for anything. So whether it's a business, a piece of real estate, or a farm, the only thing you're being incentivized for is the value of your equity stake in that asset or business. And the appreciation of that The growth in that over the period of time you hold it. Let's assume everyone's holding it for 10 years because that's how you get that big back end and set up. But if in the meantime, it spits out cash flow, because let's say you own a building that people are leasing and businesses are leasing and it's spitting out ordinary income cash flow that way, that's just treated at the regular rates. Or if if the business is pushing out dividends, or if a farmland is putting out some kind of distributions, again, all that's just treated like under the regular tax code. It's not treated specially. What's treated special is your ownership stake in any of those assets.
0: But kind of going back to the point you made that I think is, is pretty important here is that I'm sure people will do this for real estate and farmland, et cetera. But it seems like the best use case is stuff that you have the big capital gains on. So, I, I would assume that a lot of the startup community venture capital, this seems like the really the perfect use case for this. Is, is that a, even though people may still do it for real estate and farmland, it seems like shielding the capital gains is the best possible use of the tax incentive?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the most powerful part of the tax incentive for sure. So, real time venture capital investors who are thinking about ways to use the program. The only limitations are kind of the practical limitations of the market is much more developed around real estate than businesses, kind of like we talked about before. But even like taking a step back from that, I think the bigger point to realize is this is really creating a brand new market that doesn't exist. There is no real market now that ties equity capital because most of these community investment programs have been predominantly debt financed. It, it provides equity capital from individual investors anywhere in the country. Anyone can participate in this program that has capital gains, whether they're corporations, institutions, or just you know, an individual investor who sold stock that day and wants to roll over that into one of these funds. And the businesses and real estate that are in these communities that typically have been separated from capital markets. So the funds are going to be kind of filling in this gap. They're going to be building the market because they're going to be connecting the capital to the deal flow, unless, of course, you're sitting right in that community, and that's going to be a lot of the kind of early users of this program. And I think there's a little bit of a psychological bar, almost, in some of the venture capital community, where they believe the best businesses in the country are obviously in New York, San Francisco, or L.A., and so that's where we should invest. And increasingly, and you know, Steve Case is obviously one prominent investor voice that has been blowing the horn on this all the time, you've got to assume there are entrepreneurs all over the country that are building interesting businesses all over the place. The talent is cheaper. The real estate is cheaper. The market is not nearly as as hot as, you know, let's say Silicon Valley. And so the question is how and will this change behavior? Not just of where businesses go and set up shop or whether they stay in communities instead of going to the coast, but will investors really start to take this seriously? and move in mass to these communities. And you're starting to see it now. And that's the big bet. And we think you can get there because we see this as like a $100 billion asset class a year, which to give you a frame of reference is twice as big as the venture capital industry.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You started to see as we did research for this this podcast, you know, a number of these fund companies, there's a lot of online portals that do say real estate investing, like Fundrise. We've had a couple of them on the podcast in the past. I'm sure AngelList at some point will start to have a little checkbox that says, by the way, this is probably an opportunity zone business. I imagine a lot of the platforms will eventually develop. I know it's really early, but I assume you've started to already see some investments happen. Are any that you can kind of talk to and not specifically, you don't have to. But as kind of examples of things that are happening already with with whether it's funds or uh, as far as uh, multi asset funds or individuals starting to already move into this, because I actually tweeted about it and people said, "Hey, I know someone who's got eighty million. I know someone who's doing this with this, 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 this." Anything you've seen already is kind of early use case of this.
1: Yes, a couple of things. One, let me kind of put that caveat out out front that a lot of investors are waiting to get more regulatory clarity from Treasury and IRS. So some of the markets, a big chunk of the market's waiting for that. And with that being said, there are already a number of funds that have either formed, uh, there, there's been some recent press on some, on some funds that have gone off the ground and are in the process of forming. And, and they take pretty much every type you can think of. There are venture capital funds that are looking for businesses in these zones that are starting to ramp up. You see some specialized stuff, like, for instance, a lot of, there's a lot of uh, equity capital interest in Puerto Rico and, you know, rebuilding the island, investing in assets there after the hurricanes. And because the whole island is one big opportunity zone, it's, it will be a really interesting test case for whether and how this changes the way capital flows to a place like that. And then what you see very commonly now is people who have identified, hey, my real estate project or this development is right in the middle of a zone, we're gonna put equity capital in here, let's structure this as an opportunity zone project to get some of the the muscle memory of how you do this, and then we can start doing this for projects all over the place. And I think what you've seen in that regard is real estate and project developers start to reprioritize their deal flow, and to say, hey, if I've got 100 projects I can invest in, let's first identify the 10 in opportunity zones, and focus on on moving capital to those first. Uh, Because we want to take advantage of being an early mover. We know people who have investors who have capital gains events this year. And so they've got to move it into a vehicle within 180 days. So we want to capture some of that. So this market is all building in real time, but it's building across every sector you can think of. One other that we hear from a lot is like the clean energy infrastructure sector. So we hear from folks who are involved with solar panels or wind turbines that say, hey, this is perfect. There are big zones in rural areas in the Pacific Northwest or in the Southwest of the U.S., and this makes a lot of sense for us to put our project or to structure our investment around. And so you're seeing all types. It's not just the investor community, by the way, that's organizing around it. You also see cities start to organize around it. I'd say you start to see them organize around it in as determined a way as you saw around the competition for Amazon HQ, except in this case, they're actually likely to get some kind of benefit from it. And most of the cities that competed in the Amazon HQ battle were never gonna be realistically a place that Amazon was gonna roll in 50,000 people. But there are communities now all over the country. We, we just got together with 16 mayors down in Las Vegas and Los Angeles who are organizing their whole economic development strategy for the next 10 years around how to make opportunity zones work, how to tie in permitting and zoning and workforce development with that now the new private capital they're going to be seeing in the zones they've created uh, in their cities.
0: Awesome. Two follow-up questions. One is, by the way, just a comment on Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is interesting because there's already some tax benefit structures in place where if you live there, you get a certain cap on, I think, dividend and capital gains, but also if you domicile a corporation there. So there's like a quadruple tax benefit if you're in Puerto Rico somewhere. Jeff, we need to do a reconnaissance trip down there and go check out the the surf and everything else.
1: I'm available for that too. Good. Know, in case you're looking for another hand.
0: Well, you and I can uh, co-sponsor Actually, you can do it. I'll promote it. The first Opportunity Zone conference in Puerto Rico. That would be a good locale. Love it. What happens if you invest in a company? I say I invest in a startup in Detroit. It's making the world's best coffee. Two years later, it gets bought. What what happens in that scenario? Are you screwed? Can you roll it forward? Is it who knows?
1: Again, business investments are always going to be a little more complicated. There's a certain recognition that the investors and the fund... Have little limited control, at least, over what the businesses do. In that scenario, you'd be in a little bit of a tough spot, but let me tell you about the way that would practically work. So, there's one specific provision to be aware of in the statute, and that's that there's a five year off ramp for business investments you make that become unqualifiable. You have five years essentially to then off ramp that and redeploy it into a qualified asset. Now, if you've held that asset for six years already, and then it goes public or gets bought by someone else, you're good. You'll get credit for that full 10-year hold because you'll get five additional years of time to hold it as an unqualified asset. But if you, in your scenario, if it's only year two, you basically have five years to both liquidate your stake and redeploy that capital into an asset that then qualifies. It's not ideal, because it forces you to find a new investment and you may restart your clock on that 10-year hold, but it doesn't penalize you in the way a lot of other programs do. And let's say, worst case scenario, you can't find anything in five years, which is a long period of time, to a way to redeploy it or a way to liquidate it. The penalties in this program are fairly low, actually. It's essentially equivalent to the underpayment tax penalty rate that you get for having a deferral basically of that original capital gains, but you didn't then have that money invested in qualifiable stuff at the end of the day. But there's lots of ways to avoid that just by finding another place to put that capital within that five years.
0: I've been writing for over a decade, so I'm, I'm well aware there's a lot of haters out there. But I, I write about quantitative finance, so thankfully, mine stuff's too boring to get too many. But you know, this is the intersection of not just money and investments, but communities and politics all wrapped into one. So I'm sure you've been defending against some haters out there. What's kind of the most common naysayer comments that you guys receive? Because I imagine there can be somebody saying, you know what, you guys are actually just trying to make rich people richer and they're the only ones that are going to benefit. Like, What what are some common two or three things you hear quite, quite often that are kind of nonsense or may even have some validity?
1: There's all sorts of potential critiques around the program. I, th- I think for the most part, We hear a lot of excitement about it from investors and from mayors and governors. Everyone's excited for something new because the existing stuff hasn't been working for not just 10 or 20 years, but arguably for for 30, 40, 50 years. One, it requires a little bit of creative thinking, a new approach to economic development, period. This program is designed to target the market to work in ways it would normally work, but in these communities that it's overlooked for so long. And there's a lot of skepticism, I think, in general by a certain part of the community, whether it's folks who have engaged in traditional community development work who see that as a threat or who distrust that the investors are going to use the program like the program's intended. So I think there's some level of distrust there. Then I think you've got this kind of competing critique of either One, this will never move enough capital. Investors will never really look at these areas. We think that's wrong, but there's some people who believe that, and I think the market will prove that that's wrong. Or the other piece of it, that the capital is going to come in so fast to places that it's going to lead to real gentrification concerns. And let me be clear, gentrification is an issue in certain markets that are getting lots of capital it's an issue in dc where i live it's an issue in new york and san francisco and la we didn't look at this but actually the urban institute which is arguably the premier think tank around gentrification in the country looked at all the opportunity zones that were selected or at least most of them at that point and they have this index they use of rapid socioeconomic change which is basically a way of, of saying what places are subject to gentrification and they found only four percent of Opportunity Zones that were selected were at risk of being gentrified, and 96 percent. And the reason for that, when you kind of break it all down, is that for 96 places that were picked as Opportunity Zones, the problem is for them is not that they're getting in so much capital, they don't know how to deploy it. The problem is that they've been cut out of capital markets forever, and they're desperate for capital. They're desperate for new business creation, where many of these places haven't created new businesses in 15 years. And they're desperate for new jobs, and they're desperate for the kind of skin in the game that comes when equity investors have a stake in your community and want to see it grow. And that's really the problem this program program solves for. And I'd argue that for sure there are examples of places around the country where if this program supercharged how quickly investment came in, it's something the communities are going to have to deal with. But the other side of that you can argue is the reason they're going to so few places is because there's been no reason for investors to look at a bigger part of the marketplace. And I think if investors have a bigger part of the country to choose from, that will actually be better for even the communities that are getting a ton of capital now because it will provide opportunities for investors to look at other markets and other assets and will kind of decrease some of that pressure you're seeing on a handful of markets where everyone's been going.
0: I love it. So say you're an investor listening to this. First of all, you, I assume you don't have to be accredited but still follow the accreditation rules for startups. What are the best resources? I know this is just starting your website, eig.org. Any other particular resources you think are good starting points for people want to find out more?
1: So our website provides a lot of that baseline information. It has a searchable map, the basic rules of the program. We keep it pretty well updated around rules coming out from Treasury and IRS and coming out from individual states about this program and other commentary. There are other organizations that are engaged in this as well to different degrees and are organizing and creating sites around it. But information is pretty uneven now. And there's a lot of myth and innuendo about how this program works or interpretations of what Treasury and IRS is likely to do. And until IRS provides that clarity, there's really not a lot of other great sources for definitive information about it. Obviously, IRS and Treasury also have a website on this where they've got their own map and rules as well. So they're they're going to be another good kind of obvious source for information. But you know we talk with investors and fund managers around the country every day. So I encourage folks to reach out to us directly as well when they have specific models or specific questions. And we can help provide information and also help put them in touch with other, both service providers and other organizations that are thinking about this with a lot of nuance and depth.
0: It's exciting. It's gonna be fun to watch this develop. We may have to have you back on the podcast in six or 12 months to get to get some updates. Talk to me a little bit. We don't have too much more time, but talk to me a little bit about you. It seems like you got a curious mind. This is this is a really interesting, creative you know, solution to kind of what's plaguing a lot of what's going on in the U.S. right now. I mean, versus a lot of the nonsense we hear a lot of time on the media. What, what else are you guys up to with Economic Innovation Group? Are there some other projects that you guys are working on or is there anything that you're thinking about that's uh, got you particularly excited? Or is this like take up 110 percent of your time uh, every day?
1: in general we're in the business of helping policymakers and the media and you know local leaders understand the trends that are impacting their communities and best practices emerging places and specific policy outcomes that that matter to places i'll give you a couple examples of things that we've focused on in the past there are regulatory issues that are unnecessarily reducing the dynamism of economies all over the country in every state, like non-compete agreements, which I think you're seeing a lot more focus on that uh, in particular, larger companies use to prevent workers from being mobile and moving from business to business and, and in a lot of cases, creating their own businesses. So that's a big issue. There are regulatory issues like occupational licensing, where as a hairdresser in one state, to become a hairdresser in another state, you got to take 1,000 more hours or 1,500 more hours of instruction to get your license that is just really designed to keep people from moving and competing. And so there's a lot of questions around what makes our economy competitive and what uh, empowers workers to move jobs and move between states and create businesses that we're lacking. And obviously a big chunk of that, even separate from this, is the gender and demographic differences of who's able to start companies in this country, who's able to get capital, 1% of venture capital goes to African-Americans, 10% goes to women. And I don't think anyone really thinks that white men are the only people that have good ideas worth investing. In fact, there's a lot of studies that show uh, women entrepreneurs who get venture capital are way more successful than men pound for pound. So you know, there are these big systemic problems that we really care about. One other issue, which I think is really interesting and really controversial, is one of the features of our economy that's changed a lot over the last few decades and, and, and starts now to look like an economy of the 1930s or 1940s is the amount of market power that large companies have in every industry and that market power, that corporate concentration in, in our economy is leading to all sorts of things, lower worker wages and lower investment rate and this huge decline. We're seeing a 40-year decline in our ability to create new businesses across the country. And that, why that's super important is because new businesses account for almost all the net job creation in America. So if you're not creating local businesses, if you're spending all your time attracting the next big guy, you're eventually going to lose. And a lot of communities have a loss because they never made that transition from a big manufacturing economy, to what the economy is today, which is a bunch of innovative people creating businesses. But with all of that being said, we think that's super important. We're really spending all of our time and energy ensuring that Opportunity Zones are implemented in a way that make this program work. And at the bottom line, you know, there are all sorts of ways this program can be improved. This is an experiment. We're at day one. We're going to have to improve and iterate on this program over time. We're going to have to write more rules, make some changes, watch for things that are happening in the market that may be abusive or may not have been what we were factoring into the program when it was created. But at the very base level, we have to make sure it works as a model, that it's going to move capital at scale. And if it can do that, if it can move $100 billion a year. One, it will be the biggest economic development program in US history. It will move 30 times as much capital as the next biggest economic development program that exists right now. And it may totally change the conversation we're having about what's happening in America. And we're trying to get there.
0: I'm excited. I love it. What's the next biggest program off the top of your head? Is there one in specifics?
1: Yeah. So the most recent program and the next biggest one that's specifically focused around community investment is called the New Markets Tax Credit. You may or may not know about it. This is really well known in the commercial real estate business. And many of the large banks and uh, uh, groups called community development finance institutions, um, essentially local community-based investors are aware of this program. And it's a tax credit style program. The federal government gives about $3.5 billion a year in tax credits. To fund uh, what's not exclusively, but largely real estate projects in a lot of these same communities. And that's been the biggest problem to date. That program was created in a bipartisan way by President Clinton and then the Speaker of the House, Dennis Hastert, in 2000. And it's now almost 20 years old. And it's moving, you know, $3.5 billion a year. And it's had an impact on places for sure. It's the most successful community development program we've had really since people have been doing this over the last forty years or so. But it's still small. It's not doesn't have the scalability that Opportunity Zones has. And it's there are very niche group of investors that use it now because it's fairly complex. And we you know we think this program will change the way people participate in community development in this scale because anyone can really use it. Anyone can be an investor and anyone can create a fund.
0: Can the governors recharacterize the tracks at any point or are they set in stone the next 10 years?
1: So they're set. So every governor in the country had ultimately until sometime in June to make their selection. And Treasury has now certified that map of every opportunity zone in the US and the territories. And so when you go to our map, that's a final list of tracks and those tracks last until the end of 2028. So that map set in stone for the next 10 and a half years, essentially.
0: Awesome. Steve, we asked one last question to all of our podcast guests, and this may bring up some wonderful or painful memories, but the question of the past year has been personally looking back, have you had a most memorable investment of your own? It could be good. It could be terrible, which is often the case. Anything come to mind could be something that when you were a child or even in the past year.
1: Well, I have to be totally honest that uh, my biggest investment to date is in my house, and that's been a uh, a money pit that uh, keeps on uh, sucking from the uh, the coffers. Uh, and there is a, another company I'm you know super bullish and excited about that a, a couple friends of mine have built in the financial tech sector called Aspiration.com. Which if you haven't had them on yet, you should. They're really changing the way that everyday consumers of banking services they're changing that relationship. And I think they're going to really cut into a big part of that retail banking market. So I'm really I'm excited about things that kind of change the status quo that's not working. And beyond that, you know, my biggest investment, just to give you a sense of how good I am at this, has been in EIG, the nonprofit I run now. <laughs> so, so between the house, the nonprofit.
0: My company is a for-profit, and it's basically a nonprofit, so I can sympathize. But listeners, by the way, it's funny you mentioned that about the house being a money pit. Listeners who've been listening to this podcast for a long time, will be happy to know that I finally sold my 1967 Land Cruiser. I'm very sad about it, but talk about money pits. That was uh, that was another one. Steve, it's been a blast today. Where can people find more information? They want to follow your writing, your tweets, your updates. Where's the best places to go?
1: My Twitter handle is at Stephen with the VG Glickman. Our website, EIG.org, is a, is a great font of information about Opportunity Zones and just the economics around this stuff. And I'm super active on LinkedIn. So come find me and reach out to me. I want to be a resource for investors who are you know, active in using this program. We're building a new market here and I, it's exciting to be a part of it on day one. So I want to help whoever is got that shared interest.
0: You better be careful what you ask for. You're going to get 20,000 new LinkedIn requests next week. Steve, it's been a blast. Thanks for so much for taking the time today.
1: Thank you, Meb. I'll talk to you soon.
0: Listeners, you can always find the show notes. We'll add links to EIG, all the other stuff we talked about, resources, calculators, maps, all that to the website at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. You can always find the archives as well. Leave us a review. You like it, you hate it, you love it. By the time this comes out, our new book will be out. The Best Investment Writing, Volume 2. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.